This morning, we're back in the book of 1 Samuel, and we're continuing now on the last half of chapter 10. So I, I find it so interesting in our literature of how many ancient legends we consume and we enjoy. And they go like this, and, and stories that we read or, or movies that we watch, it, they go like something like this. There was a great king who ruled with wisdom and power and justice and compassion. And, and when that king was there, the land experienced a golden age, and everything and everyone blossomed. And we all reached our potential, and the land blossomed, and the arts blossomed, and relationships blossomed, and civilization blossomed. But, but something now has taken the king away and everything now has deteriorated. Everything's fallen into decay. But, but the story always goes, we look for the day in which the king will come back to make everything new. Do you, do you realize how many legends that we read and that your kids read or we, we've been a part of are like that? It's astonishing. You, know, you have the, the Robin Hood legend, right? Here's Robin Hood fighting because the good king is gone and now darkness has descended on the land. He's, he's fighting uh, to keep the flame alive until the good king can come back. And you have the great King Arthur stories in Camelot. Arthur was ruling there, but now he's gone. And supposedly on his tombstone it says, here lies Arthur, Rex Quondam, Rex Q Futurus, meaning the once and future king. Not just the once, but the future king. And that's critical behind all legends. There was a, a great king, and, and when he was here, everything was great, but he's gone, and when will he come back? And you have even more of one of the most successful and powerful modern legends, a, a legend written in the 20th century, Lord of the Rings, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Actually, behind all of them is the basic thing that there is one true king, and he's hidden in the, in the north, and he's going to show up, and when he does... Everything will blossom. It says here, Tolkien writes, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. He writes on and on, and it goes. Why? Why is that so uh, appealing to us? Why do we always search for a king? This, I, I believe, tells us something about us as humans, our search for a king. And when we come to the last half of 1 Samuel chapter 10, the people have asked earlier for a king and they're going to receive their king. They get their, their anointed savior. And so this morning we're going to walk through the text, uh, but before we do, I'm going to read it, so follow along with me. 1 Samuel chapter 10, we're starting at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, 
he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent, away, sent all the people away, each one to his home. So also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. This morning, we're going to walk through these 11 verses, and I want you to notice that I will point out five R's, R's, things that start with R's that will, will give us markers as we walk through the text. Um, but before we do, I want to pray, and so I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for everyone that's seated here and that you've brought into this place, and I, God, I ask that you would teach them this morning, that you would allow them to hear and understand what your word says. God, I ask that you would change them this morning. As they listen, God, may you convict them, give them sensitivity to your spirit. May they come away changed this morning by the preaching and reading of your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The section here in 1 Samuel 10 starts with a coronation. This is to be a solemn occasion with proper protocols and formalities. A coronation is also a very happy celebration. In Britain, in the year 1953, the entire world got a glimpse into the prestige, the pomp, and the ceremony of Elizabeth being installed Queen of England. You can watch the video now on YouTube in color. I don't know if it was in color then. You'll have to tell me those are around when you watched it. I spent a few moments watching this week and all of the, the, the special unique features and parts of the service, the dignified officers of the English court bestowing on Elizabeth the highest honor uh, of their country. And it was significant and it was a special time for the country. But I also read about another coronation that happened in Scotland many years before in 1773. The Church of Scotland, the General Assembly, had the power to impose an unwanted minister on any congregation, and they did. They inducted David Thompson as minister of a parish near Stirling. The Presbytery's moderator, Robert Finley, addressed Thompson during the installation service. He and Fort Thompson informed him that he and the other ministers were present at the order of the General, General Assembly, and 600 heads of families, along with all the elders of the churches except one, had opposed his selection as pastor. And before the Presbytery and the congregation, Finley therefore implored Thompson to, quote, give it up. Thompson refused, directing Finley to obey the orders of your supervisors. And at this, Finley read the words of insulation and then closed the service without having even prayed for the new minister or the congregation and sent everyone home. How would that make you feel? Welcome? Would you feel appreciated? Well, this sets the stage here for our verses 
in chapter 10 and verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And you remember the people, Mizpah is very significant to this book because it's Mizpah that Samuel had, had led the defeat again of the Philistines. Remember, they, they set a stone up at Mizpah. Do you remember the name of the stone? Ebenezer. And it was a place of remembrance for the people. And so here they are again at Mizpah. And, and this should be a coronation of the king, a time of celebration for the people, but we have an issue, don't we? Verse 18, Samuel speaking, he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all calamities and your distresses and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by, the, by your tribes and by your thousands. This is not a celebration, friends. This is a rebuke. That's the first R, a rebuke. Samuel rebukes the nation. He knows that he has to be more faithful here to God than cordial. The nation is living in unrepentance. They have rejected God. You know, Samuel's supposed to turn a blind eye to their sin. Is he supposed to just gloss over it is he supposed to just hope for the best? Should he just get over it? Should he just move on and look for hope in the future? I believe Samuel chooses wisely. He chooses to honor God over man. And he reminds the people, God reminds the people of his supply for them. He is the one who brought them out of Egypt. He is the one who delivered them from the destructive hands of their captors and other kingdoms that were pressing in on them. He is the one who protected them, who loved them, who provided for them. God was the one. God was the one who could handle any enemy that could come. This is what God is like. He delivers his people from the powers that would harm them. And do you see the implications here? God is the one who can save them. God is the one who can be trusted. But they have rejected him. They refuse God. They decline the offer of God. Instead, place their hope in something else other than the God of the universe. There's a certain madness in the heart of Israel. I mean, what they have done is deflected the saving arm of God, and it makes no sense at all. To reject God is to reject their Savior. It wasn't that they didn't want God as their king. That's bad enough. It is the fact that they didn't want to be God's people any longer. They were rejecting their family. And Samuel says in verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Yeah, I, I wonder as I read, did, did Samuel pause after this? Giving, giving effect to the foolish rejection of the people. But as we read, it, it fell on deaf ears. And he continues, he says, Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now we, as the reader, need to understand that when a prophet reminded the people of God's goodness and then their guilt, it was usual for him then to pronounce a coming punishment. That was the pattern. 
And so the people are probably flinching at this point, standing still unaware of what might come next. And that's the second R, reveal. The king will be revealed. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. What's going on here? You know, he asked for all the tribes of Israel to gather together, and he brings out lots. We don't know what kind of lot system they used, but they were used to decide the one that God was choosing. Now, you have to put yourself into the sandals of the people and understand what's happening here. The last time this process happened was in Joshua chapter 7. Do you know what happened in Joshua chapter 7? Achan. Not good. And in Joshua 7, a, a certain tribe had been chosen, a certain clan had been chosen, a certain family had been chosen, and then Achan had been chosen because Achan had took, he had seen, he had coveted, he, he, he stole, and he hid it in his tent. And remember, kids, if you're still awake, look up here. Read Joshua 7 this week, kids. Read with your parents and know that God knows exactly what you do and where you hide. He knows and the truth will be found out. And that's a free one, parents. And the situation in Joshua 7, it was bad. They took Achan and he took his children and his livestock and his family and they stoned him. They killed them all. And this was severe. And you maybe think it seems way too severe. But friends, the consequences for sin are always severe. That's the point of the gospel. And also listen here. Parents, the family of Achan pays for his sin. Our families always do. They always receive a consequence for our sins. So coming back, the connection with Joshua 7, coming back to 1 Samuel 10, are you putting yourself now in the position of the people? If you know your history and you hear what Samuel is doing, he's bringing all the tribes together. There's probably a, a, a hush that comes over the crowd. The older informing the younger of, of do you, this is what happened with Achan. Do you remember this in your history lesson? And they know that God has reminded them of their goodness and his protection and then he, he tells them again of their rejection, their sin. And they know what will come next. Punishment, consequences. And as he goes through it, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. Then the clan of the Matrites was taken. Then Saul was taken. Each step, each lot, I'm sure was an eternity for people. Like when you're slowly walking downstairs... I grew up in a house in Michigan that had a basement. Most houses do in Michigan, and it was always dark. And, 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 and sometimes the lights didn't work always, and so you're walking down the stairs dark, not sure what you're going to see at the bottom. I think of this as each lot is taken. Each step creaks. Each movement gets you closer to something you may or may not want. 
and the lot is cast for Saul, the son of Kish. And I wonder if, if there was a sigh of relief from the rest of the crowd, thinking, oh, it's not me. And, and I believe there wasn't any rejoicing over the selection. It wasn't a prize show. And the winner is Saul. Saul, come on down. Saul. Saul? And they look for Saul, but he can't be found. Can you blame him at this point? And remember, Saul already knows that he will be king. This was done in private before this announcement. We don't know how long before, but we know that Samuel knows and Saul knows. Saul knows that he was the one selected. So shouldn't he be standing at this point? Shouldn't he be he coming tall and proud, ready for his honor? You know, I read a, a few different commentaries about this and different views on why Saul would hide. A, a few wanted to paint Saul in the corner of humility, that he was showing his humility to the people, uh, not presuming that he was better than anyone. And this could be, but I don't buy it. I believe that terror had gripped Saul. He is no idiot. He knows that, that something is, 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 is off in this, and he hides, maybe thinking, maybe he'll pass over me. Maybe he'll select someone else. But God hasn't made a mistake. He knew exactly what he was doing. Saul was selected by lots because it would indicate that the selection of a king would not be a joyous occasion, but a form of judgment for his people. Saul is selected as king at the moment when a judgment would be pronounced to the people. Sometimes God brings the most severe judgment for our sins and so that we would feel the, the weight of the consequence and that we would see our rejection of him. And Saul was selected by lots because it would bring legitimacy to the selection of God for the people. They couldn't say later that, that Saul was chosen incorrectly. And Saul is chosen. The lot falls to him, but no one can find him. He's gone from their sight, but he's not gone from the sight of God. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come, they asked? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Saul was hiding, not knowing what Samuel and God were up to. Was there going to be another execution? Did Saul's dad give him advice to go and hide? We, we don't know. He's called and he can't be found. He's, he's vanished. He's, he's hiding in the boxes or food supplies or kettles or pots and pans, the, the baggage. Saul's hiding. You cannot hide from God, ever. You can never hide from God. God will always find you. God always sees you. The people can't find him, though. But God knows exactly where he's at. I don't think it was humility. I think it was fear. Fear of what's next. What will happen next? And this moves us into our third R, reverence. Because they will hold Saul with great esteem. Verse 23, then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. 
God tells them where Saul is. He's over there. He's hiding among the bags. And they go and they seize him and bring him out before the people. And what does the narrator tell us at the end of verse 23? He tells us again, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And I want to say, we get it. He's tall. What's the point of this again? But remember, the people wanted a king like the other nations. They wanted someone impressive, someone to be a visible presence that would strike fear into their enemies. It wasn't enough that God was on their side. That was not controllable for them. That wasn't enough. They needed someone who would show a kingly appearance. And the irony is that their kingly man is over there hiding in the bags. He's cowering. Samuel reaffirms the bad decision of God's people and says, here's your guy. This is the one what you have asked for, the one that you've wanted. God has chosen someone spectacular for you. Look at him. There's no one like him. This is what they wanted. This is what they got. You know, they never asked for a king who would follow God. They never asked for a man who would lead them spiritually. They never asked for a man who would humble himself before the sovereignty of God. No, they wanted a guy that would win battles for them. And they will get it. And their their final step of rejection is a response to Saul. As Saul stands before them, they cry out, long live the king. How quickly we can turn away from God as our true king and look for hope in this world. You know, throughout this story, you read about the unrelenting sovereignty of God. The people demand a king, but they can't do it themselves. I mean, even after he's selected by God, they can't even find him. They don't know where he's at. They need God's help, not only in selecting the man, they need help from God to find him because he's hiding. They must not have played hide and seek much as kids because they stink at it. And in all that, do you see the sovereignty of God? And friends, you might, you might be sitting here trying to grab the reins of your life, thinking that you have this, that you've got this under control, and, and you don't. God has it. God remains relentlessly sovereign in all of your life, and he's not going to give up control. You can't hide from him. He knows exactly where you are, and he knows exactly what you need. And the people forget about God, and they show reverence for a man. No one had called him a king, yet this is exactly what he will be for the people. The alarming thing is they so quickly shift their allegiance from God to a man in those four words, long live the king. Well, this brings us to our fourth R, rights. There'll be rights and duties for this king. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Many of the commentaries that I read believe that this is in reference to Deuteronomy chapter 17. There's a large section that I've mentioned before in in that chapter that give the rules for uh, the future king. God knew that Israel would want a king like other nations, and God had foreseen this back and before they even come up. he, He wrote this down. Moses wrote this down for him. 
And he would say in Deuteronomy 17 that this king would not acquire great amounts of wealth for himself and, and look to have a great personal treasure, but he was to write, actually handwrite the law of God in a book, and he was to read it every single day. That was the requirement for God's king. The king would live under God's law. The king would be subject to the word of God and to the law of God. You see, in all of this, the, the people had been outmaneuvered by God. There's a distinction that is made in this passage. It's not just about a king, but the kingship. And they were bent on abandoning the kingship of God by getting a king for themselves so they could be like the other nations. And now they have a king. They're king by popular demand, but they have a king as defined by God. He is the one who establishes what a king would do. They had a king, but the kingship would not be like other nations. They were getting a king in theory, but they would be subject to God. God will not give up his sovereignty. And this is my prayer for our nation. I, I hope it's yours. You know, although we're not ruled by a monarchy in America, we do have mayors and governors and judges and presidents. And whether they know it or not, they're not rogue officials. They are not outside of the loving control of God. And we should continue to pray for them. Pray for our leaders. Pray that they would understand the word of God. Understand that they should function under the law of God and not man's law. Well, the end of verse 25, Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. The coronation service has ended, rather awkward, and Samuel sends everyone home. Even Saul is sent home. And don't you love that? Saul, the king, is sent home by the prophet of God. Did you catch that? Saul goes home because Samuel told him to go home. He is doing what Samuel told him to do. And I, I find humor in this. The king is subject to God's man, God's prophet, his mouthpiece. He is to be subject to God. His army, his men of valor follow after him. Well, this leads us to our last R this morning, the fifth one, rejection. Verse 27 but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he, Saul, held his peace. There were some, you see, that said no, because they were saying no to God's choice. And they weren't just saying no to Saul, they were now saying no to God's choice. Samuel had said, this is God's choice, and they were saying no. No to the king and no to God. And they should have honored the king. This is why the narrator calls them worthless men. Do you remember that term? It was earlier in the book. Do you remember who it was about? Eli's sons, worthless men, wicked men. Sometimes God will permit us to be ruled by unspiritual leaders. And we have an obligation to submit to those rulers as God has placed them over us. 
Paul wrote to Romans in chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. If we fail to submit to all the legitimate leaders placed over us by God, we will earn the same label as worthless fellows who is given to those who oppose King Saul who is placed there by God. As I wrap things up, there's something that kept nagging me as I read and studied this passage this week. Well, two things, really. First, I kept coming back to the end of verse 24 and the people's response to Saul. And, and those four words, long live the king. I kept thinking back to all sorts of movies and, and books that I've read that have the same response to the people in the storyline. Standing in joy as they see their hope and, and in unison shouting out, long live the king. And we have a fascination with kings, with, with the legends of kings and kingdoms. That's what little boys play, what I hear in the backyard. Kings and battles and wars and little girls, I know, play the princess. We have a fascination with this. It still has a very powerful sway over us. Why, in those countries that still have some sort of royalty left, some kind of royal line, the people are then obsessed with royalty. And us here in America, where there's no king, there's no royal line, we then have to create them. So we take billionaires, and we take athletes, and we take media stars, and we take political stars, and we turn them into kings. We crown them, and they hold our attention. We adore them. And not only that, it happens in the church. A significant part of the church population who has consistently given themselves over to the sway of, of larger-than-life figures. Did you hear what John MacArthur wrote? Did you see what he said? Did you see what Matt Chandler's doing in his church down there? What about John Piper? Did you read what he said? And we're drawn to this need of a king. Why is that? Why do we feel the need to crown them? Why, why is there even a need to create them? Why is there a need to adore them and, and, and wait on them? Friends, you need to understand this morning that, that even in America, democracy is medicine. It's not food. You can't live on medicine. It's medicine. It's there to help with an illness. And we have a democracy because as human beings, we're so sinful that none of us really are, are fit to rule. But we need a king. We're built for a king. God built us that way. And the main reason we adore kings and create them is because there's a faint memory that lingers in our mind of kings and kingdoms. You remember when I began this morning, we, we've all read the stories. You know, they're passed down to us, instilled in us. We're, we're made for a king. And you and me have this memory ever so faintly, still lingering, a king, a great king, an ancient king, one who would rule with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory. And we know that we're built to submit to that king. We're made to trust that king. We're made to give ourselves to that king. We were built to stand before and adore and serve and to know this king. 
God made it that way. And yet, the other thing that lingered in my mind in this passage and that troubled me was the ending, the, the worthless fellows that stuck out to me. They reject this king. They don't feel he will, he will do anything for them. Maybe, maybe he really won't win the battles they think he should win. What, what, what can this king do for me? Really, I, I think they, they come to the conclusion that I can take care of myself. I can be my own king. I believe the Bible talks about that a lot. I read this week about a quote from George MacDonald, who was a Scottish writer who inspired C.S. Lewis. MacDonald said, quote, The one principle of hell is, I am my own. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. I think what he means is that the one conviction of everyone in hell, but also the one conviction that creates hell, is this conviction that I'm me. It's mine. It's the same conviction that will create hell in your relationships, or hell in your marriage, or hell in your neighborhood, or hell in your community, or hell in your life. It's the principle that I am my own. I don't need you. I don't want you. I am my own. I am the captain of my own soul. I am the master of my own fate. And this is what George MacDonald said is the essence of what every human being feels. And we feel it from the beginning. Isn't that right, parents? Don't we see this in our kids? Don't we see it in ourselves? happens with every human being. It dominates our feelings, our decisions, our worldview. I am my own. And the Bible says that we also hate the idea of a king. We hate the idea that someone has rights over us. We hate the idea of a king who has control over us. like A king who says, you belong to me, you're not your own. Don't fall for the nonsense that human beings just don't believe in God. That's not accurate. We don't just disbelieve in him as we're created. We hate him. There was a sermon from the 19th century by a British preacher. I read this when I was studying through John. And he ended his sermon like this. He said, oh, my friends, if virtue incarnate would appear only on earth, we would fall down and worship. And that's a really stupid thing to say. Why? Because virtue incarnate did come to earth. And what did we do? We ran. And we grabbed him. And we beat him. We bloodied him and we nailed him to the cross and we killed him. And why did we do that? Because we hate the king. There's a true king, but we hate him. And there's many that struggle with this concept. You know, I have neighbors that live around me that would disagree with me here. They think that they're good with God. They believe in him. They, they don't necessarily mock him. They, they celebrate Christmas and even tell their kids about a baby in a manger. And, and what they're doing is, is using religion to avoid Jesus. 
they're using their religion to avoid the king. So let me put it another way for you this morning. Do you believe you're a decent person? Do you believe you are perhaps better than most? You're a straight shooter, that you have moral standards and you stick to them. Do you think that if God were to show up right now that he would weigh your actions, your life, and you'd, you'd think you'd get into heaven? I mean, you're as good as everyone else, so, so why wouldn't you get into heaven? Or do you believe that you're such a helpless sinner that you have absolutely no hope of ever being received by God except that Jesus died for you? You have no hope except for the mercy of God which is displayed in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that you are a helpless sinner or do you think that you're a fairly moral, good person? And don't you see, friends, it's, it's the latter that helps you avoid Jesus, that, that keeps you away from him. Your morality keeps you blinded from the truth that you're a desperate sinner in need of life. You need this king. You were born for this king. This is why you exist. The people in 1 Samuel wanted a king. And they looked in the wrong place. There is a king with ultimate glory. Who, believe it or not, came to earth and stripped himself of all of his glory. And when he went to the cross, he wasn't just stripped of his clothes. He was stripped of his father's love. He was stripped of the father's approval, of the father's respect. And he did all of this because he was taking our place. There is an ultimate king. The king of glory. Jesus Christ is the king you should honor because he, at an infinite cost to himself, took our place. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ was stripped naked of his glory so we could be clothed in the righteousness of him. Jesus Christ exchanged places with us. He left his glory. And you and I were created not to be our own lords, our own saviors, our own kings. We're not made to call the shots in our lives, but to follow the king, the one true king, to be completely abandoned to him. He is our right and he is our true king. And I pray for you, church family, that you would honor him as your king this week. And to my non-Christian friends here this morning, I would plead with you not to continue to reject this king. He is your rightful king. You need this king. And I pray that you would humble the your knees and submit your life to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you that we can come before your throne as our king. And we can talk with you, God, knowing that you know us intimately. You know everything about us. I'm still amazed that you would know every single part of us, and yet you would send your son to die for us.
to redeem us, to make us new. And now as believers, as Christians, as followers of you, we can come boldly before your throne. We have access to the king. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for your love and your care for us. And maybe this week we have forgotten this. Maybe we've gotten off track. We've been consumed with other things and we have forgotten that we're children of the king. May we be reminded of that this morning. Father, I pray for those that are seated here this morning that do not know you as king. They have rejected you. They believe they can live on their own. They believe they can make it on their own. God, I ask that you would humble them, that you would bring faith to them, that they would learn to trust in you and to you alone. And they would place their faith in you and you promised that you would save them. Help us, Father, as we leave this place to take this glorious gospel to those that we come in contact with. Help us to not be ashamed of our King. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.